You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Potts, recording in Maryland. And I'm your co-host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Ankit? Good. It's good to be back with you, Katie, in this new year. Yes, welcome to 2023. Uh, I got that right. Sometimes I forget what year it is, the beginning of the year. But anyway, uh, in today's episode, we're going to dive more deeply into a topic we've touched a few times in, in recent episodes, but not quite discussed in depth. That is, of course, the bevy of major strategic documents approved in December by the Japanese government. These include the new national security strategy, the national defense strategy, and the defense buildup program. Uh, together, these documents tell us a lot about Japan's strategic priorities and its defense ambitions. Uh, the national security strategy is actually the newest of those documents, having first been issued in December 2013. So this is the first revision of that document. This was also fun little fact, this was the first time these three documents were released together. And so I think that's also pretty interesting. So let's just start with the basics on it. You know, what are these documents designed to do? Uh, and we can get into the juicier bits after that. Yeah, sure. So uh, Japan first issued a national security strategy uh, in 2013, uh, December. So that was, uh, you know, as you just noted, Katie, that was one year after uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, which has ruled Japan for most of the post-war era, came back to power after a brief period where Japan was led by the now defunct uh, Democratic Party of Japan. Uh, late Shinzo Abe, uh, who was tragically, of course, assassinated last year in a, in a shock uh, event, um, was elected prime minister in December 2012. And Abe, for listeners who don't know, of course, has basically made it, uh, made it his life's work to move Japan towards a more normal status as a country that um, operates on the world stage, primarily when it comes to matters of defense and national security. Um, Japan's, of course, post-war um, constitution, uh, drafted in large part by the United States, saw the country renounce war as, uh, as a tool of statecraft. Uh, and while there were sort of discussions in the 1950s and 60s about what exactly that meant for Japan, that's the broader context here. And so the 2013 national security strategy acknowledged a more difficult threat environment for Japan. 2013 was around the time, uh, you know, this was a um, little more than a year after uh, the Senkaku Islands had been nationalized and tensions in the East China Sea spiked between uh, Japan and China. Uh, North Korea had carried out its um, third nuclear test uh, and threat perceptions overall in Tokyo were quickly growing. Um, and so fast forward now to 2022, obviously we're in a completely different world uh, in, in so many ways. The most prominent, uh, as, as we talked about, in our end-of-year review podcast, of course, is the return of territorial invasions, right? Uh, not that the Russian invasion of Ukraine began in 2022 necessarily. Uh, you know, it began in 2014, if you uh, if you take into account the Russian invasion of Crimea. But for Prime Minister Kishida, uh, who's part of the LDP, although part of a different faction from Abe, uh, this has been a primary concern, uh, right? I, I mentioned this on the last episode, but Kishida uh, sort of gave us a preview of what to expect in these documents earlier this year when he delivered the keynote speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, uh, or sorry, last year, I'm getting confused now, uh, and he <laughs> said that, you know, Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. So all of that sort of sets the stage for these documents that we knew were coming after Kishida was elected. Uh, Kishida isn't going to face a prominent election, having sort of secured the upper house and the lower house for a while now. And so broadly speaking, let me finally answer your question, Katie. So the, the three documents, the national security strategy is... Um, 
really akin to what we might expect out of a document by that name in any other country, including the United States. It's a statement of what Japan feels is important in the world, how the threat environment has changed, and what Japan sees as necessary to secure its interests and secure its national security in an uncertain environment. The national defense strategy is much more directly focused on defense procurement programs uh, and investments. It replaces actually what was called the National Defense Program Guidelines, which were released in 2018, five years after the 2013 NSS, uh, outlining sort of that Japan was going to buy certain missile capabilities and other things, missile defense capabilities, to um, make make good on the commitments it set out to accomplish in its NSS. And then the final uh, document, uh, the midterm, uh, or sorry, the defense buildup plan or the defense capability construction plan, this is more sort of a budgetary thing where um, the mm. actual yen uh, outlays over uh, for many of these programs over a number of years are sort of articulated. But the big picture here is that uh, Japan is, I think, at a important inflection point. That said, you know, I, I do again want to just talk about the history here because this isn't Japan sort of waking up in 2022 realizing the world has changed and so we have these three documents. Really, I think it's the culmination of at least a decade of ongoing national security shifts within the LDP across uh, across certainly the long-standing uh, second term uh, under Prime Minister Abe, which lasted from 2012 to 2020. Um, but even even more broadly, you know, you could go all the way back to the 1950s to look at some of the precedents for for what has actually been manifested now in these documents. So Japan has taken a big step forward in terms of becoming a more normal military power in East Asia. And these documents, I think, explain how Tokyo is going to go about doing that. Great. Yeah, it sort of seems like a codification of a process of, as opposed to a radical break, necessarily. Um you know, when you read through these documents, or as you were reading through these, you know, what are, in your view, the, the most significant changes or features? So, you know, you have the national security strategy, which, as you described, is sort of how a country views the world and views its its threats and its, its risks. And a lot of things have changed since 2013, but Japan's position in the world hasn't necessarily changed. So I'm curious, you know, what is what are the differences and what are those features that kind of jump out to you? Sure. So the big thing I think we have to talk about is defense spending, uh, right? Japan has traditionally spent around 1% of GDP on on defense. Uh, and in, in the new NSS, um, uh, in the course of these new documents, that is increasing to more like 2% now, uh, right? An effective doubling in, in, in a pretty difficult fiscal environment, too, I should note, right? In, in total, over the next five years, Japan will spend around $315 billion U.S. dollars uh, on its defense acquisitions. Uh, and the most prominent capability, and I suspect we'll talk about this in more detail, Katie, so I'll, I'll leave this for later in our conversation, uh, is the pursuit of so-called uh, counter-strike capabilities or counter-attack capabilities to sort of hold at risk missile launchers and other capabilities in North Korea, but also potentially in China. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a pretty important change. What I think is important also here is that, you know, Japan has always had a military. Uh, this idea that, you know, a lot of people are aware of the Japan uh, of the Japanese post-war constitutional restrictions uh, renouncing war. But that has, you know, hasn't meant that Japan hasn't maintained a military. It has spent a lot of money on defense. It has robust capabilities, submarines, ships, missile defense assets that uh, that contribute broadly uh, to a, a robust defensive posture. Traditionally, however, um, Japan has built up decades of its defense policy with the U.S. alliance as the cornerstone uh, of its strategy, right? The traditional sort of cliche is that Japan is the shield to the United States sphere and that the United States provides the strike effects and the long-range capabilities and the expeditionary capabilities necessary to 
prosecute sort of high-intensity conventional warfare uh, in East Asia, while Japan provides defensive capabilities, logistic support, basing, uh, and other types of support for that effort. And that is now changing, and Japan is is becoming an equal partner uh, to the United States in many rights. And that's an important shift for the alliance. The U.S. has welcomed this. The State Department, right after these documents were released, um, issued a statement welcoming uh, Tokyo's passage uh, of these um, of these new documents as well. So that, I think, is notable. Uh, but overall, I think, you know, those are the big banner items here uh, that are being pursued. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about how, you know, how the strategy was received by the United States, which you sort of preemptively answered. But how was it received sort of within the region, um, particularly by China, for example? Uh, and I think it might be also interesting to, to see if you know, uh, how was it received by the Japanese people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so th those two questions, I think, are, are really important. Um, none of this is a surprise, uh, right? I think um, the final result of this NSS, while still sort of remarkable as a historic milestone in Japan's uh, defense strategic evolution, um, I think China, the United States, had basically expected that the Kishida uh, NSS process would result in documents that were forward-leaning in this way. We've had years of news reports about the intra-LDP and intra-coalition uh, LDP-Kometo discussions about the so-called counter-strike capability, for instance, which has been mm -hmm. controversial in Japan. Um, the public opinion dynamics around this are interesting because uh, the Japanese public, like so many publics in developed countries around the world, uh, has seen what happened to Ukraine uh, and I think has become much more aware that um, the world is more dangerous, objectively, than it was several years ago. And of course, being in East Asia, watching North Korean missile launches, Chinese military power expanding has also shifted these dynamics. Um, I talked a bit about how the fiscal environment in which Japan is doing this is a particularly difficult one. And here what's interesting is that Kishida... Uh, is taking sort of a politically bold stance here. I mean, he's explicitly, uh, he has explicitly made a pitch to the Japanese people that the way in which Japan will pay for these uh, important improvements to its defensive capability will require potentially tax increases, which are unpopular in Japan as they are anywhere else. Uh, but that, I think, is is going to sort of shake out over the next several years where uh, we're, we're in a period of economic uncertainty. Growth is largely foundering around the world. People generally don't have great sentiments about national economies, not just in Japan, but around the world. And so in this environment, uh, pursuing this kind of a defense buildup and specifically funding it through tax increases is, I think, going to have potentially a, a blowback effect. Uh, but that's a prediction that could be wrong, uh, and, and perhaps Japan will be able to pull this off, but I think that's an important um, TBD item. Uh, for China, again, I think, you know, China has broadly seen Japan, you know, I don't want to be too flip about this, but as a bit of a lost cause in terms of bringing Tokyo closer to Beijing. Uh, the two countries mm -hmm. have a complicated relationship where even Japan acknowledges that they have to work with China for, for economic reasons and other reasons, and big reason being that China is there in the neighborhood. Um, but, of course, uh, China is very clearly articulated as, as a primary security challenge uh, for Japan in the NSS. Uh, and then just to give you a little bit more on the United States, uh, this is broadly, uh, you know, one of the post-Trump era um, drivers of U.S. foreign policy under the Biden administration is generally encouraging allies to take uh, to improve their own capabilities. Right. You have AUKUS. You have the end of the U.S. South Korea missile guidelines. You have this robust welcoming of the new Japanese NSS, for instance, uh, selling more weapons to Taiwan, encouraging Taiwan to also improve its 
own strike capabilities. So all of this, I think, really fits nicely into that broader um, picture that the United States is pursuing. The other thing, though, is that I think the Japanese, after the Trump era, uh, like many other U.S. allies, are, of course, concerned about the long-term reliability of the United States. Now, this is very seldom expressed in public. I think a former Japanese defense minister, Jen Nakatani, once expressed this publicly, I think, during the Trump years, which was that Japan doesn't know if the United States will always be there to defend Japan, and so Japan needs to invest in its own capabilities. And I think that is a strong undercurrent that behind closed doors, I think, has informed a lot of the process leading, uh, leading into these three documents. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, I was I was in Japan in December of 2018, and I definitely heard uh, from from some people uh, in sort of that the national security sphere uh, that there's always the question of the United States. Is the United States going to be reliable? And it was a, it was a question that that gained salience under the Trump administration just because of his style of governance. Um, I think the the last question I really want to throw at you right now, and you again, you sort of preempted me on this one, but you know. In what ways do you think that the war in Ukraine, uh, which we've discussed a lot, influenced any particular part of the NSS, whether this is sort of the counterstrike capabilities or, or other sort of core um, aspects of defense? Uh, yeah. It certainly seems to me that the budgetary part is is a part of that, is the, you know, we do want to spend more money and that this is a demonstration of why. But I'm, I'm curious if you have any final thoughts on on the Ukraine angle. Yeah, so, you know, preempt is actually a funny word in the context of the counter-strike capability, and maybe we can come back to that. But but on, <laughs> on Ukraine, I mean, I guess, so so my, my sort of take on this is that, um, like, let's imagine a world in which you don't have COVID, you don't have 2022, 2023 becoming this period of global degrowth and deglobalization, and you don't have a war in, uh, in, in Europe. I still think the Japanese NSS looks pretty similar to to what we ended up with mm -hmm. in late 2022, right? I think I think Ukraine provided Kishida with this nice, you know, sort of framing, uh, right? When he goes mm -hmm. to Shangri-La and he delivers these speeches about how the world is becoming more dangerous, it's obviously a real articulation of that. Uh, and it is a reminder that's very visceral for many publics uh, in East Asia and Europe alike that interstate warfare, wars of territorial conquest are not a 20th century relic, that they can happen uh, under the nuclear overhang in in the 21st mm -hmm. century. But these dynamics, again, I think have been have been brewing for a long time. Uh, you know, and then the intra-coalition dynamics between the LDP and, and the Komeito party. Komeito, I mean, to oversimplify, is the more dovish party, um, much more interested in restraining the LDP's sort of instincts towards fully normalizing Japan. But I think those dynamics have also been perhaps made a little bit more um, fluid in ways that benefit the LDP as a result of Ukraine. Um, briefly, though, on the counterattack capability, uh, and and really your use of preempt here was perfect because uh, <laughs> so Japan basically publicly says that you know under under the circumstance where an imminent attack is about to be initiated against Japan or Japan is already under attack, Japan would use long range missiles to strike uh, deep into an adversary's territory. So let's say North Korea is preparing missiles for launch, Japan believes that those missiles are due for targets on Japanese soil. How they know that is, I think, an interesting question that I don't think Japan has fully figured out. But the idea would then be to strike at those missiles, right? So basically, um, and this is traditional, like we've seen this with other countries historically, like Taiwan in the 1990s had similar debates, right? You can't only depend on missile defenses. You might want to develop a capability to actually strike at the country mm -hmm. that's about to strike you. The problem with all of this is that it's incredibly difficult to do any of this in practice, to strike at mobile North Korean missiles. Um, the escalatory effects are, I think, significant and underappreciated, which is that, let's say you're wrong about the start of an imminent attack and you carry out a strike, uh, you basically then 
become the aggressor potentially in a conflict and you and you initiate a war where a war might not otherwise have broken out right so those those kinds of issues i think deserve consideration i think japan is thinking about these issues right they are um look the japanese ministry of defense was established in 2007 right a lot of this japan's process of normalization is very new and i feel like the the intellectual horsepower that's going to power a lot of what the this 2022 nss has set out um, is going to be dealing with these sort of difficult problems moving forward. Uh, and I know for a fact that there are, you know, very sharp people in Japan thinking through these problems, thinking through how Tokyo can mitigate escalation risks while sort of pursuing what it seeks to do with its, um, with its broader strategy. Um, but a lot of this, I think, is, uh, is going to be important. The other thing is figuring out how this is going to affect the U.S.-Japan alliance. Uh, and, and that process mm -hmm. is underway, but it's fundamentally going to be new for the United States to um, deal with this new strategic environment in Asia where many of its allies are going to have long-range strike capabilities that can deliver potentially escalatory effects on their own against nuclear-armed adversaries like North Korea and China. Uh, that's mm -hmm. uh, not really been what the U.S. has been used to in the past, where the United States has been at the qualitative forefront of having those capabilities itself, so that's given the U.S. military, for instance, the the initiative in planning for escalation. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot that's going to be, I think, um, really worth uh, thinking about closely here uh, but those are some of the ones that strike me as um you know, you know most significant all right well I, I think that's a good place to leave this uh very interesting conversation it's obviously a topic we will continue to watch uh for our listeners uh if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a positive review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts uh, and get in touch with Ankit or I if you have uh, any topics you think that we should tackle. Um, we're always listening, so uh, we'd be happy to uh, take that feedback. And uh, well, I guess I wish everybody a happy new year and, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, Ankit. Thanks a lot, Katie. Good to join you.